0: Oh, the, 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 Adult Language, nudity, and adult content.
1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome. It's eleven PM Eastern Time. Wednesday, January fifth, twenty twenty-two. First show of the year. And thank you for joining us for the hundred and twenty-third episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll shrink.
0: All
1: Alrighty, we'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. As always, thank you very much for that. And if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic.
2: Okay. Well, you may not be thanking me for too long. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) that is a deep cut from a frequently played song in his live shows. Off uh, Jimmy Buffett's first record, and the name of the song is Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw? That really is the uh, name yes. of the song, folks. I could not make oh, that no, stuff up. Oh, no, I'm
1: familiar. Up. Yes, I am familiar. And uh,
2: the <laughs> reason I decided to play that is we're talking, going to be talking about uh, rituals this evening of the socio-interpersonal nature, not like eeny mini Chili Beanie." And uh, often drinking is involved in a ritual, uh, courting rituals in bars, I, we should say. And I just thought that would be kind of a cute nod to our show tonight.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's completely fair. All righty. So as Dr. Mathis mentioned, yeah, you're, you're laughing evilly. Um, <laughs> tonight's episode is entitled The Psychology of Social Ritual, which we will discuss in a moment. So before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir.
2: Okay, so I thought I'd do a slightly more uplifting uh, trivia section this evening from our last one, which really would not be very difficult to do. But, you know, sometimes you got to talk about the depressing and the uplifting. So tonight for the new year... For our one-two-three 3 episode, I thought I would talk about four somewhat obscure uh, acoustic guitar luthiers who are well-known in the field, but not so much by the average Joe or Jolene. And part of that is because their guitars are pretty flipping expensive and the average Joe or Jolene can't afford them. Uh, but having said that, they make really fine instruments, and I'm aware of several of them. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to own several of them, um, mostly because they were used and turned into a music store, and I got them for a lot less than they are really worth. but I digress. So um, I'll start off, and these are not in any particular order of quality or alphabetizing. I just threw them up on the screen, and I'm going to go with it. So the first person I'm going to talk about is uh, Olson, James Olson, who makes, obviously, Olson Guitars. Uh, most of you probably don't know Olson guitars. But have you ever seen a guitar with the O on the headstock? <laughs> I imagine that, right? Uh, that's an Olson guitar. Uh, Olson started out uh, actually in, at, uh, in the Hudson River, uh, excuse me, St Croix River in uh, Hudson, Wisconsin. I think in 1950. I think he was born in 1950, and basically started out young, at a young age taking stuff apart, mostly things like bicycles and making uh, push cars and all kinds of crazy stuff. And even though he started playing guitar at 12 uh, and he was fascinated with how guitars work and he would take them apart and change pickups out and finishes, he never actually thought about actually making a guitar, despite the fact that when he was in junior high school shop class, he won the Future American Craftsman Award, which I thought was interesting. Um, worked on cars as he grew up, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, modified things from Chevys and uh, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He worked out of a gas station for a while. Uh, and anyway, uh, won a lot of drag strips racing modified, D-class modified cars. He, in the early 70s, he moved to St. Paul, Minnesota. And sort of became that's when he became fascinated with making guitars and he read about a bunch of books about uh, guitar making and that sort of thing and so in, in the uh, he set up a shop in the basement of the house he was renting and started making guitars. Quick, he had like no formal training or anything, so he wanted to just kind of uh, mess around with it. But eventually he ended up met up with two gentlemen, uh, Belville and Hoffman who had recently opened up a luthier guitar-making shop in Minneapolis and started kind of chatting with them and got all, you know, psyched up. So he essentially, you know, said, okay, well, eventually I'm going to make a guitar my full-time occupation as a luthier. I'm going to quit my day job and do my thing and started out as a furniture refinisher and eventually ended up uh, in the basement of his house in the late 70s, I think 77. And Olson Guitars was officially an entity and went for several uh, years, opened up a storefront in uh, St. Paul and uh, that he shared with, I think, a dulcimer maker. And several years was in there, made a bunch of guitars and never really got anywhere very much with them. People in his church bought them and, you know, but nobody knew him and he couldn't get any, you know, movement out of it. Um, eventually he moved into the basement of his church which saved him a bunch of rent money because they had this huge uh, space that he was renting and he uh, gave he traded his services uh, the the service of the church basement as he was doing kind of janitor and fix it stuff well as it turned out uh, in the early 80s a guitarist Phil Kagey who most of you probably have heard of uh, who was a Christian uh, musician Happened to go into his his uh, space and word got around probably because of the Christian community he was working with and the church members some of the church members had bought his guitars, and he came in and purchased his first Olson guitar and then commissioned Olson to, to make a bunch of other guitars. Well, then of course he performed on stage and people saw the guitar and they went whoa, and then in the late 80s all of this came to the attention of an artist that most people know very very well James Taylor who went into his shop in the late 80s and went, yep, we're going to be buying your guitars and started going on tour with him in the early 90s and the rest is history. And eventually moved from the church to uh, Circle Pines, Minnesota and a huge property with a 3,200, I think, square foot shop near his house where he still works to this day. Uh, and he doesn't make a boatload of instruments because he does everything by hand. He's a very old school kind of guy. And... A lot of very famous people play his guitars because they can afford them. <laughs> and I'm certainly not slamming the guy because, I mean, if I made guitars the way he does, I'd be charging an arm and leg for him too. But having said that, uh, a lot of top players play them. They're very much valued. And uh, I think the cheapest one I've ever seen that was a used one was like $18,000. They're typically i sorry dollars 28- I said the cheapest. Yeah, the, yeah, they typically go for twenty five thousand and up. <gasps> oh yeah, I told you. <laughs> these these ain't guitars from Sissy Missy for Sissy's Missy. <laughs> yeah, apparently
0: <Okay>. not. <laughs> no, wow. no, he,
2: he makes really cool guitars. He's a. I mean, I've seen interviews with him. He's a super nice guy. Just seems real laid back. Not impressed with himself, which I really respect because he does make really good guitars. Uh, I actually. Um, my crack dealer here, uh Ben at Righteous Guitars. <laughs> oh
0: <laughs> uh, actually somebody turned
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what I call him, my crack dealer. Uh somebody turned in an Olson for them to do repair on and I got to play it and it was pretty it was pretty amazing. Uh but uh, <laughs> it was, uh just a hair out of my price range. Uh <sighs> so I'll talk about another uh really well known and this one's more kind of a little more mainstream, although his guitars are not cheap. None of these people's guitars are cheap, but they're all really top, well-done guitars. Probably one of the well most well-known boutique guys guys uh, is Bourgeois Guitars, and they're out of uh, uh, Westbrook, Maine. Yeah. And it just so happens that Dana Bourgeois, who actually owns Bourgeois Guitars, went to school with one of my former uh, master's level supervisees husbands and they're from the New England area. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting and like with old James Olson, a lot of really well-known people play bourgeois including Ricky Skaggs, Ry Cooter, uh, Vince Gill, so it's uh, you know James Taylor also has bourgeois but you know when you're James Taylor you can afford a lot of cool gear. <laughs> Uh, he, as I mentioned, he was uh, from Westbrook, Maine. Initially born, I think, in '53, and uh, started out developing guitars. Interest in building guitars after seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, <laughs> uh, and went to uh, to uh, Bowdoin College, studied history, graduated, and then while he was in college, read this book called Classical Guitar Construction, and that kind of really went. Okay, we're going to be going. We're going to be doing this. And his father sort of helped him out. He was doing uh, work from his campus room and used a machine shop that was owned by his grandfather to make his own guitar. And one thing just sort of led to another. And uh, eventually uh, he made the guitars, got he started out repairing guitars and then making them and uh, continued honing his craft. And uh, he's you know, he's done a lot of jobs on the on the uh road to that, including working at the College Museum of Art of, at Bowden uh College. Started out with uh, Eric Schoenberg and started out Schoenberg guitars, worked for them for several years and then branched out and got his own company in the early nineties uh in I think Lewiston, Maine, and makes some really, really cool guitars. I actually own a actually I own two bourgeois. And uh, they're very cool instruments. He makes them from very uh, unusual woods, uh, Brazilian rosewoods, uh, Indian rosewoods, Adirondack spruce are very, very common. And he has a really interesting way he combines uh, the woods that he does. Uh, And I think one of the first uh, guitarists that bought his guitars was uh, Brian Sutton and then Ricky Skaggs, who was then at the Ricky Skaggs Band bought his guitars in that in i think in mid 90s and that sort of started you know the uh musical elite kind of being uh you know uh being aware of his stuff uh eventually though um it, 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 the demand for his guitars kind of dried up and he went through kind of a bad period at one point but uh and I think of, I think at one point uh, his shop, cl- Bourgeois Guitars, closed down and Pantheon Guitars bought them out. Uh, but uh, they hired Bourgeois to oversee the stuff, and so it still gets um, done under his name. He does continue to do custom design guitars so that he does really kind of one-offs now as opposed to more um, uh, production models Um, He has won awards from Guitar Player Magazine, Acoustic Guitar Magazine, um, and he he does a lot of unusual stuff, Um, like he makes these uh, piccolo guitars, which are like the little small-body guitars that you see Ian Anderson playing uh, from time to time, doing the things like uh, a Break With, that sort of thing. Uh, So he's still making guitars, uh, and they're really good, and as I said, I'm lucky enough to have two of them, and they play incredibly well probably the oldest uh, acoustic manufacturer of guitar make, uh, makers and kind of boutique guys are the Santa Cruz Guitar Company. Uh, and obviously they're in Santa Cruz, California. I know that comes as a big shock to everybody listening. Uh, they're a little bit bigger operation. They make uh, everything from acoustic guitars to baritone guitars to mando to acoustic basses, that sort of thing. So uh, this, this start out uh, by Richard uh, Hoover, who learned his craft from uh, Jim Patterson in the late 60s and started making guitars out of his hometown. Uh, the Santa Cruz, as I said, are probably the oldest acoustic guitar makers in America. And they also make some very standard but very unusual guitars. Um, he made his, One of the first models he made was a dreadnought. Those are often called D guitars for obviously for dreadnought. Uh, and they have a really, really good balance between treble and bass. And uh, I think the Santa the Santa Cruz I own is a dreadnought uh, that I got uh, secondhand from a guy. And uh, they use also, very much like uh, bourgeois, they use uh, kind of unusual woods like koas and that sort of thing. So they have a very interesting uh, side. And they've made a bunch of very one-off guitars for people uh, everywhere from Tony Rice to Eric Clapton. Uh, to a bunch of different folks and they they're they're still making guitars to this day and uh, have done really really well <clears throat> excuse me uh the guitars sound awesome they play really really well and uh, they're just really great they also make a lot of uh, unusual cone uh like uh, cocobolo and zitacote and that sort of thing and again like some of the other guitar makers they he he tends to blend the woods together in a way that really looks cool and does these interesting inlays on them that are just really, really, really stunning. It's interesting because when you see the Olson guitars, they're somewhat plain looking and you think, oh, you know, and then you play them and you go, oh, <laughs> it's a very <laughs> different experience. All right. You see the other guitars are a lot more showy. Uh, you know, it's just – it's. But you know, it, it's they're all really fa- fabulous. Uh, excuse me, fabulous guitars. But as I said, the the Santa Cruz are probably the oldest. So there's they're sort of a lot of your guys like, uh, Arlen Roth, Elvis Costello plays some, Ben Harper plays some, Rubber Plant even has one, Brad Paisley, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then probably the other one that's uh, probably the third biggest uh, in terms of longest lasting, or one of the top four uh... or manufacturers that are actually out of staunton virginia uh... hus and dalton
1: it's stanton by the way
2: <laughs> oh is it
1: Yeah. how it, do you pronounce it, it? Is spelled, it's spelled what you think is staunton but it's actually someone's surname and it's pronounced stanton and that's a running joke in virginia
2: oh that's <laughs> so interesting okay yep. well thanks for that because i had no sure. clue yep, oh that's no cool. Idea at all. it's, it's, all kind of it's a oh, half-hour south
1: you. of uh... harrisonburg and JMU where i what matriculated for my undergrad. That
2: is so cool. Okay. Nope. Well, and it was started, obviously started by two guys named Huss and Dalton. I know that comes as a surprise to everybody listening. Uh, Jeff calls <laughs> Huss and Mark Dalton, <laughs> uh, I think 95. And they're in the actually located in the Mennonite area uh, of Virginia. And really, Man. yeah. And uh, they've been there since, I think, the late 1990s. Uh, And I have one of their one-off twelve strings. (laughs) It sounds amazing. Ooh, Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Ben Ben actually went to their factory and picked out the wood and the whole nine things. So it's it's a one-off. It is really 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 uh, amazing. I I don't know how to say that. It's a great sounding guitar. Um, They use a lot of uh, interesting bracing uh... in their guitars uh... most of the guitars are very triple a grade wood so they're very high end stuff and some of the guitars are pretty showy and some of them like uh... you know some of the other guitars the olsons for example are very plain looking but they just they sound amazing and they make a very large variety of things so they make the double os and the triple os and the om's and all of those are just uh, so the number of zeros and the OMs and the Ds and the Fs and all that kind of stuff, that really just speaks to the body, uh, the size of the body of the guitar, which has an impact on, um, obviously, the tone of the, of the guitar. Uh, and a lot of folks, you know, there's some very pretty famous folks who play and Dalton, including Bob Weir, uh, Edie Burkell, Paul Simon, uh, Albert Lee. So all these folks have very famous folks playing their guitars, and there's a good reason for that, because A, they can afford them, and B, they're awesome guitars. (laughs) And finally, I want to do a nod to, as I call him, the Bigosh and Begora guitar maker, George Loughton, who's obviously in Ireland. I know that comes as a shock to everybody, uh, based on my last comment. Uh, Down Patrick, (laughs) to be exact, Uh, And he also was born in the early 50s and been basically a luthier since uh, the 60s, uh, since he started making his first guitar at age 10. So uh, he's a precocious lad, (laughs) Uh, founded the guitar company Loudon Guitars originally, uh, initially in 1974 at the age of 22 and has been making guitars ever since. Uh, and he's making guitars from a sh- for a shoot ton of people. Most of the people that play his, his guitars are obviously uh, Brits and uh, UKers. So there are people like uh, Michael Hedges has played his guitars, uh, Luca Bloom has played them, Richard Thompson, um, Ed Sheeran, uh, so if you see those guys, they're, they're usually playing Loudons because they're a little cheaper over there because you're not even paying for tax and all. Uh, but the Loudens are really, really, really great guitars. And I own two of these also uh, that I got from my crack dealer. <laughs> uh, and he, he makes some unusual things like fan fret guitars, which you don't see a lot of uh, manufacturers making. And, <laughs> so i all of, all four of these guys just make really 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 uh, amazing guitars and have been doing it forever and a day and just really uh, attention to detail is an understatement. George Loudon also likes to to merge a lot of different uh, woods together, and just the way that he puts them together and the way that he merges the woods and the back and all it's just i mean they really really are pieces of art uh it's just really amazing. And uh, it's just, I, I just love all these guys for their art and their work. And really, my hat's off to these guys. And if you if any of the listeners can afford any of these guitars or they happen to find one from somebody who doesn't know what they got, uh, scarf that bad puppy up <laughs> because it will not go down in price. Let me tell you, these are good investments and they all sound awesome and they all are made awesomely well. And I would totally support any of these guys in terms of uh, their luthiership. So I wanted to introduce, because everybody knows acoustics. You know, they know people like Taylor or Gibson or, you know, PRS makes, them, uh, makes uh, acoustics. And, you know, and all these guys make really good stuff, but these are much more big-time, you know, big-box manufacturers, uh, shall we say, as opposed to these folks who are much more small, uh, boutique-type guitar builders, but their guitars are awesome. So I want to do a shout out and kind of a, make our audience aware.
1: Very very nice. So so my birthday's coming up next month. I'm just saying. <coughs> oh, <there> you, <laughs> <you're>,
2: <laughs> you can yeah. do a GoFundMe, right? <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes, a Kickstarter for my guitar <laughs> that I have to go, Come on.
0: <laughs> yeah. All righty. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much for that. <laughs> They sound really beautiful and, uh, you know, be, I would love to get a chance to play one just once. That would be fun. Well, if you're ever back
2: in my area, come on, come on down. (laughs) Come on down. They're not moving with you, are they?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Okay. So thank you very much for that. And, uh, We will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. And please feel free to give us a call. The number is 914-338-0314. Okay, let's dive into the meat and potatoes. Episode 123, Games People Play, The Psychology of Social Rituals. Now, although this may differ slightly on a variety of factors, including age, location, gender, status, race, income, culture, and other influencing factors. Most, if not all of us, have been enrolled in at least a few social rituals, from the coffee or cigarette break to clubs and gangs to workout buddies to business on the golf course and a wide variety of others. We like the simplicity of knowing basic things about the people around us and how we are being perceived in return. Who is our friend or enemy? Who is safe or who means us harm? Who is the proverbial, quote, one of us? It is exhausting to always be on so much guard. And the more of that we can make unnecessary through rituals, the less stressed out we are. Tonight we'd like to talk about social rituals which is, and, and why they're so ubiquitous and their role in our society and culture. So tonight we'll discuss what are rituals and what are social rituals in specific. And then what are the differences between social rituals, manners, and etiquette? And then what purpose do social rituals provide for us psychologically? And how can we use our knowledge of social ritual to navigate better socially? And before we start on that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything that you'd like to add.
2: I'm good. Thanks.
1: All righty, let's dive on in. It's eleven twenty eight, so we've got about a half hour to chit chat. So first, what are rituals and what are social rituals in specific? So let's start by establishing that the term rituals can mean very many different things, from tribal or religious ceremonies to ritualized ceremonies such as Graduation, a holiday, celebrations, and a bunch of other stuff. And we're gonna, I'm going to throw a few definitions at you to, so you can kind of get a Venn diagram here. Ritual is a set of actions often thought to have symbolic value, the performance of which is usually prescribed by a religion or by the traditions of a community, by religious or political laws because of the perceived efficacy of those actions. That one's a little more specific than I think is really appropriate, but I have several here, so let's go over all of them. Next one, social practices, rituals, and festive events involve a dazzling variety of forms. Worship rites, rites of passage, birth, wedding, and funeral rituals, oaths of allegiance, traditional legal systems, traditional games and sports kinship and ritual kinship ceremonies like for example the masons or fraternities <clears throat> settlement patterns culinary traditions seasonal ceremonies you know like a midsummer or something like that practices specific to men or women only hunting fishing and gathering practices and many more they also include a wide variety of expressions and physical elements special gestures and words, recitations, songs or dances, special clothing, processions, animal sacrifice, or special foods. Social practices, rituals, and festive events are strongly affected by the changes communities undergo in modern society because they depend so much on the broad participation of practitioners and others in the community themselves. Processes such as migration, individualization, the general introduction of formal education, the growing influence of major world religions, and other effects of globalization have a particularly marked effect on these practices. And the source for this information is unesco.org. Next, a ritual is defined by psychologists as a predefined sequence of symbolic actions often characterized by formality and repetition that lacks direct instrumental purpose. Research identifies three elements of a ritual, and this may not be a psychological definition, it's a bit more broad. First, it contains, uh, consists of behaviors that occur in fixed succession, one after another, and are typified by formality and repetition. Secondly, the behaviors have symbolic meaning, and lastly, these ritualized behaviors generally have no obvious useful purpose. I take that back. That is a little close to the psychological definition. Rituals occur surprisingly often within our everyday lives. It's believed that we form rituals based on our values. For instance, people with Christian values christen their babies as a symbol of spiritual rebirth. But rituals go further than helping us to live out our lives. They may also make us less anxious. Ritualistic practices can help to bring a degree of predictability to an uncertain future. They convince our brains of constancy and predictability as ritual buffers against uncertainty and anxiety, according to scientists. Tonight, we are just focusing on social rituals. In other words, things such as the coffee break, workout or gym bunnies. Uh, business golfing, holidays, and many more. And I've noted a few on here, but there are a great many passes lists. This just give you a rough idea of the kinds of things we might talk about. Celebrating holidays. Um, I have specifically on the list celebrating them with coworkers. You know, you have like the office holiday party, and you often get stuck with the white elephant and the whole bit, you know. That's a ritual. And it's one that a lot of us tend to want to do, And then others of us are, like, rolling our eyes, like, why do we have to do this? (laughs) And we seem to think that there's a purpose to this, and there's something in us that makes us want to do these things or makes us want to sit in the corner and make fun of them, kind of depending on where we are with it. But it's something that comes up, and that's what I'm gesturing at. The cigarette break. You know, you have certain people that now have to go outside to do that. I'm not a big smoking person, but I'm just saying, you know, it used to be you could just go around the corner and do that together. And we've had to modify that somewhat, but it is still here. Even though smoking is way more restricted, we still have that. Um, coffee break, you know, uh, go- doing business while you're golfing, all that kind of stuff. Right? of passage, tea service, you know. Ha- tea drinkers are very different from coffee drinkers because it's um, a lot more rich. Tea is a lot more ritualized than coffee is generally in Western tea, Um There's a lot of business, Thank the Victorians, which I do every day because I have all these accoutrements now. All right, work rituals, you know, working from home and the stigma about it, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's a ritual to have to go into your workplace, and we found out over the last two years that it really isn't as critical as a lot of Western bosses were saying, and they're finding out when they didn't have a choice that it actually can be workable at home. So our stigma on this obviously isn't about getting work done because we're getting a hell of a lot of work done. You know, is that cultural? You know, is there a ritual about having your coworkers there? All, all these kinds of things can be part of what we're talking about. It depends on certain circumstances. The APA definitions of ritual, and they have three, and all of them are valid, and most of them can apply to psychological situations. First, a form of compulsion involving a rigid or stereotyped act That is carried out repeatedly and is based on idiosyncratic rules that do not have a rational basis, such as having to perform a task in a certain way. Rituals may be performed to reduce distress and anxiety caused by an obsession. That definition is closest to the psychological use of the term. For example, someone with uh, OCD or possibly OCPD in certain cases. Um, That's that kind of ritual. And that's not the kind we're talking about tonight, but I want to establish that so that we don't spend too much time on it. Second one, a ceremonial act or rite, usually involving a fixed order of actions or gestures and the saying of certain prescribed words, you know, like Masonic ritual, for example. Anthropologists distinguish between several major categories of ritual, although these can overlap in practice. There's magic rituals, which involve an attempt to manipulate natural forces through symbolic, often imitative actions, like pouring water on the ground to make rain, for example. Calendrical rituals, you know, like calendar, which mark the changing of the seasons and the passing of time, you know, like harvest ritual, for example. Uh, Liturgical rituals, which involve the reenactment of a sacred story or myth, such as in the Christian Eucharist and many other religious rituals, which is kind of funny because at the end of midnight we're going to be in Twelfth Night, a.k.a. Epiphany, which could be um, very full of rituals. Uh, uh, Sorry, I lost my place. Give me just a second. Oh, rites of passage and formal procedures that have the effect of emphasizing both the importance and the impersonal quality of certain social behaviors, such as in a court of law. And then last, much more generally, any habit or custom that is performed routinely and with little or no thought, you know, ritualism, ritualistic, and so on. In psychology, the term refers to a repetitive syst- systematic behavior process enacted in order to neutralize or prevent anxiety and is usually a symptom of OCD, sometimes OCPD. Um, Dr. Mathis can correct me if I'm not quite right about that, but I'm pretty certain it does come up at times. Um, We are not speaking of that definition in the OCD or OCPD context. Psychologically, yes, but we are being much more general about ritual, the psychology of neurotypical ritual, um, not certain pathologies uh, tonight, just to establish that. And before we go too far, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything that you would like to add.
2: Nope, I'm good.
1: All righty. You're just leaving me out to dry. I'm I'm teasing you. (laughs) All right. Section two. What are the differences between social rituals, manners, and etiquette? This is not very long, but I wanted to make sure that you guys knew because there are mannerisms that fall under one or more of the other categories, and I wanted to be really clear about the boundaries we're talking about here. So social rituals – or any habit or custom that is performed routinely and with little or no thought, sometimes the intention is bonding in some form. That is the basic understanding that we're using tonight. Etiquette. Now, etiquette is an external code of conduct and a set of societal rules that act as a catalyst for positive human interactions. It governs external actions. The goal or purpose of etiquette is to make guests and other outsiders feel welcome. Also, side note, this is why etiquette can vary quite widely between cultures, whereas manners, which I'm about to talk about, don't vary as much. They do some, but things like saying you're sorry or being clean are manners. And what that constitutes can differ from country to country, but the general principle is frequently honored as a form of manners. And manners are behaviors that reflect a person's internal attitude, such as civility, concern for others, celebrating and acknowledging others, like birthday, wishing to be pleasant and regret for any actions that spoil this, irrespective of precise actions. In other words, you might eat with the wrong hand, or you might pick up the wrong glass, or something like that. But you do generally want to be pleasant, and you do generally make amends if you make a mistake. You know, in the etiquette and the execution of it. The the etiquette is the doing, and the manners is how you feel about it. And, you know, what you're about. You know, are you about honesty and welcoming, that sort of thing. And as I mentioned, this is short. I'm only bringing it up just to get you guys clear on that tonight. So we're not talking about what napkin to put in your lap. We're not talking about, you know, how to have a certain kind of party or any of that stuff. These Hmm. things are important, but these are not things we're talking about tonight. And with that, I'm going to check in with you real quick, Dr. Mathis, since you were giggling a second ago, and see if there's anything you want to add.
2: Now, actually, uh, you did a really good job of that because I was going to say etiquette is the external behavioral manifestation of manners. That's kind of how I think of it.
1: Yes, yes. I, I learned this when I started doing uh, tea classes because you had to coach people on that sort of thing. And I, had, I uh-huh. found I had to separate it. Some people don't want all that stuff. They're just like, why can't I just slap the Lipton bag in the teacup or the coffee cup and be done? And, yeah, they don't need certain parts of, of the class that I came up with. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. They obviously yeah, haven't been to Japan that. or never been to a uh, no. a formal uh, tea ceremony.
1: No, they absolutely have not. And and to <laughs> no, be fair, they're, they're very different. Yeah, Japan, Japanese and Eastern tea is different than Western tea.
2: Oh, God, yeah. It, yeah in, absolutely. in the
1: execution. But yeah. in the manner, you know – they want people to be clean and civil and take their yeah.
2: turn oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So
1: that's how they're similar. Yeah. So yep, that yep. is a great example of what I'm pointing at, just so everybody can follow along. All righty. So let's go to Section 3, and that is what purpose do social rituals provi- provide for us psychologically? So here are examples of some different things, like why do we do these things? Why are we drawn to them? What do we use them for um common experiences in other words like if you do the same things with people you're always around we like that familiarity it feels safe to us um also common activities you know common experiences might be stuff you go through with your coworkers or people at school maybe common activities might be oh your friends at the volleyball club or the people who read that book you have a book club or something You know, you have uh, common experiences with them, and people like to bond by talking about the things they are interested in that other people are interested in. It validates them. Convenient companionship. Sometimes we're involved in situations or activities, and it's the people in my class or the people that live on my street or just the people that happen to have signed up for this workshop. And what I mean by that is, they aren't necessarily, not that they're bad people, but they're just, you don't really know them that well outside of y'all took the same class together. So they're hanging out with you and they're doing things together and there's bonding going on, but it's mostly because y'all signed up for the same class. And if you hadn't signed up for the class, I don't think you would be booking time at the park to go hang out with each other. Not cause, again, not because they're bad, but sometimes we do these things with who's available. And it's really about that. And then when the workshop is over or school is ended or something, people drift apart. And that is kind of part of this. You know, we have rituals that we do with people. And then when something's over, the rituals change. And sometimes we don't like that, especially like school things and stuff like that when you're younger and you're forming things and then you realize you're not going to see these people anymore. Um, those rituals can get kind of weird and sad. Um, let me go on with my list. Um, discretion, and and by this, what I mean, is like people who hang out with the same people down on the street corner or um, up at the Seven Eleven or the school or whatever you do. So, discretion. You ever have a thing like where you talking about stuff with your homies? You know, I'm going to talk to my girlfriends at the spa, or I'm going to talk to my car you know, muscle car friends or something, that you tell them things, the secret things, the bestie things. And that is a form of bonding, and it's a bit of a ritual to it. You know, you you establish that these guys get to know the secret, and then the other people don't. Um, validates who is tribe. You know, we, we like tribe in general. As animals, we are drawn to it. And when we don't like it, it's usually an anomaly of some sort. Um, There are people who, oh, I want to be alone and all that stuff, and very often these things happen after something's happened to them and hanging out with a tribe burned them in some way. That is usually what happens when people get like that, Um, misanthropy in general, you know, just piss off, get off my lawn, those types. (laughs) I don't know anybody like that. (coughs) Uh, Let's see. Um, Mutual experiences and bonding we've mentioned before, Um, secret known things that make tribe not just telling secrets, but secret things like a handshake or a password or, um, you know, there are a lot of fraternal organizations that have rituals that are secret. And you bond and you do these rituals in private to validate, you know, your secret bond that you have and it gives you value. Um, one of the reasons we do these things is because the known is safer and we gain status through knowing the secrets and, you know, knowing the secrets is a status and just knowing is also a status because when we know things are expected, they're what you expect every month when you see them and they react the way you always expect, that makes you feel safer. It reminds us of our, um, our own history and tells us of other people's power and status. You know, when we do these little rituals that remind us, Oh, the guys at the golf club always go out to lunch here and they always talk about work at the 10th hole or, you know, different stuff like this. This is a way of shortcutting, figuring out pecking order, figuring out who can you trust? Who can you cut a deal with? Who's your buddy? You know, these are ways that we shortcut that because it's a long process if we don't find some. Um, and related to that, keeping our history and our memories and protecting our legacy and identity. We derive our identity from many different things, and not everybody does it the same. But when you have an identity and you built it around something like where would you go to school, where would you grow up, who do you work with, um, what hobby are you really invested in, you know like guitars, for example. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: When you have these ways of deriving your identity, it helps create tribe and it helps caretake the memories collectively. And that makes us feel like we're part of something that came before us and our pieces of it are going to keep going after we're not part of it anymore. And that's a way of being remembered and carrying on afterwards. So we value those things. And it's also a means to know and display our identity to maximize our own power on the scale. You know, if if a group is doing something, you know, a cultural group, maybe you're going to powwow or something or somebody's putting on a thing in an embassy or putting on a play or teaching language or any of these things. These are, you know, cultural identities. but There are lots of others, you know, gearheads. Uh, I, I like to play with American muscle cars, you know. Um, bibliophiles, you know, I, I book club all the time, or the Spanish people, or computer people, whatever, all of these different things are ways that people derive their identity, and the people who participate in them help keep that feeling safe and constant, you know, like it, it's always there, there have always been people interested in books, and they'll be interested in books a long time from now, and so on and so forth. And we like these things because we want to feel safe and powerful and part of something. And that is a very common behavior that these rituals feed in different ways. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis and see if you'd like to add anything.
2: Uh, No, except that it's also part of an existential thing. It's like the way you, in a sense, live forever. If you're part of something, that's bigger than you. that's going to continue. It's kind of a, it's almost like you're uh, immortal, but you're not it's a way to, you know, it's a way to get an existential identity if you will
1: Yes, absolutely all righty, so then the last part is and, and this is also short um, how can we use our knowledge of social ritual to navigate better socially? The main thing that we'd like you guys to do is just to be aware that we humans do this, and why it matters to us. And when you're aware of this, when you can see the sausage being made in your own brain, you have more control over yourself and your reactions to various rituals. There are a lot of people who can be spun up if you evoke these rituals, like doing patriotic stuff. You can really twist somebody up if you do patriotic stuff, or even if you do it, You know, if you do it seriously, you can get them one way. And if you do it in a rude or mocking way, you can really make some people angry with it. And just knowing, I'm not picking on patriotism in particular. It's just it's an easy example of what I'm gesturing at. If you know that we do this and you know why we care, you can control yourself when other people evoke these things. And you can be in control of when you evoke them. Maybe you accidentally invoke them. Maybe you bring up something that people associate with a ritual and you didn't mean to and now they're mad at you and you don't know why. This will help you know why because you know we do this. Being able to be more honest about wanting to be part of something and why and what we expect out of it. So it may take each of our listeners some time to mentally step back and observe in themselves, which which rituals matter most to them. You know, are you one of these people that has to join with the, the big cosmic joke, I got to have my coffee and cigarettes or whatever, you know, my coffee break or different things that people want to do. They're very universal. We bond over. So, And if you step back and figure out, like, watch yourself in your life, which, which rituals do you make sure you always do and which ones are kind of eh, You know, if I miss it, I miss it. I don't really care. I'm not that invested. So such an exercise can be helpful to be more deliberate and proactive about which rituals you keep and which ones you discard. And it also may be helpful in dealing with others as soon as you discovered what are someone else's valued rituals, great and small. You know, it might help you to understand them better or not step in something or help them out different things. It depends on what the rituals are. And with that, I'm going to check in with you one more time, Dr. Mappas.
2: I'm good. Thanks.
1: Alrighty. Um, so this actually is a conclusion of my notes, but it's 10 That's fine. We can, you know, go ahead and uh, close up the show a tiny bit early, but you know, after we mentioned the other shows and things, that'll probably fill that 10 minutes. So in summary, we hope now that our listeners better understand about social rituals, why they matter to us, and how we can be sure we carry the ones we wish. We also hope you will recognize them in others should you need to navigate something about them. You know, the, understanding what rituals they value is a very good way to bond with someone or at least to be able to navigate with them and be understood and be heard. So that concludes our show of the psychology of social ritual. Talking is hard. Um, And, okay, I've already asked you, Dr. Mathis. I'm going to ask you again. I'm sure you didn't have, like, a a grand revelation in the last minute. (laughs) So with that, on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcasts, iTunes, etc. So we will see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion on Wednesday, January 19th at 11 p.m. right here on Blog Talk Radio. We'd also like to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, tomorrow night, Travel it's Radio is back, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. In the kickoff episode of their 11th season, Travelage Radio heads for sunny South Florida on Thursday, January 6th, when when their special guest will be Jonelle Modis, M-O-D-Y-S, Senior Executive of Marketing Communications for Visit Lauderdale. In her interview with show creator Dan Schlossberg and co-host Mary Ellen Nugent Lee, Jonelle will talk about the myriad attractions on land and sea in the Venice of America As 2022 begins, she will also tell listeners what's happening in the cruise industry, which uses Fort Lauderdale as a major port of departure. Uh, Next is Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, and this is hosted on StreamYard. Sundays, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, my other show, The Walking Dead Online Viewing Party, is on hiatus until Sunday, February 20th, where The Walking Dead Classic, Season 11, Part 2, so that will be Episode 9, will air the 20th. And hopefully you guys will come back then. Uh, Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, 10 p.m. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history. and That is also currently hosted on StreamYard. And then Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time is Fandom Access Week in Review, where we can join the terrific trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of TV. So please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Rock on. Good night.